All right, if I could have you return to your seats as we turn now our attention to the reading of God's Word. We have praised the living God. We have humbled ourselves and been honest before Him. We have been reminded of our great assurance that He has given to us through Christ. And now we come into His presence to hear from Him with humble hearts, with open hands, to receive from Him His word of truth from the Scriptures. This morning we're looking and we're continuing in our study of the book of Judges. And in particular this morning we're going to look at the judge named Edom. If you have a Bible, you'll find that, or Ehud, not Edom, I'm sorry, Edom's bad. <laughs> you don't want to mess with Edom. Ehud, Ehud, another four-word uh, E-word from the book of Judges. We'll look at verse 12 all the way through 30. Um, this is perhaps one of the most uh, entertaining stories in all of the book of Judges, so it is with excitement that we read this. So turn your attention to the reading of God's word. And the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And I'm gonna pause right there. This is the pattern that you'll see in the book of Judges that happens every single judge cycle. Evil, consequence. It was the same thing we saw with Othniel, right? The people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord raised up a leader to imprison them. Same thing, so you see that. Verse 13. Eglon gathered himself, the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Jerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king, and he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. Then Ehud went into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. I wonder why they think that. And they waited till they were, they were embarrassed, but when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. 
And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. I got a question for you. It's actually a very fascinating question as, as uh, you think about it. Why do we laugh? You ever thought about that? Why do we laugh? Now, the very question has, has actually sparked a lot of interest from philosophers and scientists throughout the years. And like scientists and philosophers tend to do, they try to simplify things and break it down. And if you were really to study the, the why of laughter, these scientists and philosophers would come up with a couple of different theories as to why. And I want to share at least two different theories as to why we laugh, and I'll explain what they are. The first kind of theory of laughter that we have is the theory of incongruity. Now, some of you go, what is incongruity? Don't worry about that. I'm going to explain what the theory of incongruity means. The theory of incongruity is this, that people laugh when something violates our mental patterns and expectations. So for example, the theory of incongruity can be seen like this. You're sitting in an elevator, and it's quiet, and you don't talk to the people in the elevator, but then someone passes gas. It makes you chuckle. The laughter is because it's incongruent with common decency and how we are expected to act in public, so it makes us laugh. That's the theory of incongruity. That's one of the theories that these philosophers come up with. The second one that I want to make, make mention of is the, the theory of superiority. The theory of superiority says this, that people laugh because they feel a certain superiority over other people or even over the former state of themselves. Now, we see this played out all the time with children, especially with children dealing with like clowns or even adults who are acting silly. Because of the silliness of the clown or the silliness of the adult, the children find themselves in this strangely superior place to the adult. And the result is laughter. You know, the truth of it is most of us could care less as to why we laugh. If you're a comedian, you want to know why we laugh. We just want to laugh. For laughter, if we are honest with ourselves, is one of the greatest joys that we have in life. Did you know that laughter plays a very significant story in the Bible? That when God wrote his story of redemption, part of the story was to induce laughter. You know this story. God promised Abraham in Genesis 12 that he would be the father of many nations. And he had to wait a long, long time. And when Abraham was 100 years old and his wife Sarah was 90, an angel of the Lord came to them and said, hey, by the time next year, you're gonna be holding a child. And do you remember what Abraham and Sarah did? They laughed. Quite a story of the theory of incongruity. How can a 100-year-old person give birth to a child? It ain't possible. As Frederick Buechner, one of my favorite authors, said, they laugh because the baby will be born in the geriatric ward, but Medicare will pick up the tab. <laughs> but do you know the name of the son that was born to them? Laughter. We know him as Isaac, but his name truly means laughter. The Listen to this, church. The child of Abraham was named Laughter. Paul talks about the children of Abraham too, doesn't it? That those who are in Christ are the sons of Abraham. If you will, go with me here for a second. The descendants 
of, of Abraham's son Isaac are to be known as the children of laughter. You see, laughter plays a vital role in the life of our faith. And yet you wouldn't know it, would you? So often, and, I, and I, this is not to critique the seriousness of church. Please do not hear me saying that we shouldn't be serious about the sin in our lives. We shouldn't be serious about this, the, the, the enemy that's, that's creeping around us that wants to, to rip us out of the, the hands of our God. Uh, we, we should be serious. We should take serious the call of Jesus. But at the same time that we can take it serious, we also can laugh. And I dare say we should laugh. Why? because we are children of laughter. Did you know that we're children of laughter? There is nothing more enjoyable in life than to laugh. In church, we are the children of laughter. Now, why am I saying all this? What's the point? Did you know that Judges 3, 12 through 30 is a humorous story? Listen to what one commentator says of this text. Here we have a story that revels in mockery and in bathroom humor. The humor and mockery are deliberate literary techniques for shaming the pagan king and restoring honor to the people of God. If this statement should, doesn't cause you to pause, you ain't listening or paying attention, we should laugh. We are children of laughter. God has put this story in scripture to bring us the light in our salvation and it puts us here to delight us and to remind us that indeed we are children of laughter because we are children of the most high God who does things that are unthinkable and he does it in a humorous way. It's high time, church, that we get to laughing. And in order to get to laughing, I wanna tell two really bad jokes that capture the comedy of the story that's before you. So are you ready? And yes, they are terrible jokes, okay? I made them up, and I don't consider myself a comic. Maybe the, 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 the poor joke is the joke in and of itself, okay? You see the jokes before you, but these two jokes are gonna frame this story in a humorous way that we might laugh. First joke, who's your bud and draws blood? Who's your bud and draws blood? E-hud, there you go. I told you it's lame and it's stupid. But let's talk about Ehud. For Ehud, we will see, would have indeed caused the people of Israel in this time to chuckle and to laugh. Why is this so? Why is this so? Ehud is quite unique in the book of Judges. We are given a very specific detail of Ehud that is unique. If you recall last week, Othniel, we didn't even really get much about Othniel other than he was the, he was the brother, the son of Caleb, of the tribe of Judah, but in this particular case, we are given a very specific detail of Ehud, and that detail was he's left-handed. Now, the, the original audience would have found this incredibly and wildly ironic because Ehud comes from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, I don't expect you to know Hebrew, but the, the word Benjamin, when, when, when Jacob and, and, and Rachel gave birth to Benjamin... He looked at Benjamin and said, this is the son of my right hand. The name Benjamin means son of my right hand. And here is a son of, of the tribe, of the, the son of the right hand, who's what? Left-handed. He doesn't even fit in with his people. He's left-handed. And if you don't know anything about this culture in this time, 
To be left-handed was to be kind of a recluse. Consider what the Bible says of the right hand of God. It says God swears by his right hand. He takes pleasure by his right hand. His chosen one sits at his right hand. In this culture and in this time, the right hand is the hand of power and of strength. It's the hand you wield a sword with. It's the hand you win battles with. But Ehud uses his left hand. Do you know what the left hand was used for in ancient times and other cultures? Again, this is a story of bathroom humor. They didn't have toilet paper, friends. This is what the left hand was good for. So when they hear Ehud of the tribe of Benjamin saying, son of my right hand, is left-handed, and if you really get into the detail, there's even this detail It says incapable. If you read the Hebrew when it says left hand, it says incapable of using his right hand. So here's this man likely deformed of his right hand. All he has is his left hand. He's the one that the Lord is raising up to bring deliverance to the people of God. It would have been one giant joke. That guy, are you kidding me? But it gets even more interesting. Like if you really understand the Hebrew, the joke continues on. The word Ehud, the word Ehud it very self, it means something too. The word Ehud is a derivative of this phrase. Where is the glory? Where's the glory? This man's left-handed. Where's the glory? It's likely his parents, when he was born, if he had a deformed hand, they were like, where's the glory? He has no right hand. This guy's a joke. But who's the one who, who was raised up by the Lord? Who's your bud and draws blood? It's Ehud. It's an incredible and astounding story of how God uses the weak to shame the strong. Tom Callahan was an incredible businessman in Sandusky, Ohio. He inherited his family auto parts company but turned it from a great good one to a great one. But Tom Callahan died unexpectedly of a heart attack during his second wedding. It left his company in danger of being swallowed up by other auto part companies. The company was hesitant to, to move forward and, and to, to sell it to, to, to um, Zelensky's auto parts because there were hundreds of workers that they had befriended and, and, and loved and cared for, and their well-being and existence depended on the very factory job that they used. They needed someone to save the plant, to save the destiny of this great auto part company, Callahan Auto Parts. They turned to Tom's son, Tommy, and they didn't have or like the prospects. You see, Tommy was very much an adult, but he acted like a child. It took him nearly eight years to graduate from Marquette University due to the extensive partying, playing on the rugby team, and a less than ideal intellect. He loved cow tipping and goofing off during his work. Therefore, the chances of Callahan Auto Parts being saved by this goofball were incredibly slim. But if you know the story of Tommy Boy, the great and illustrious 90s film that will forever live in infamy, you know that Tommy did indeed become the unlikely hero for Callahan Auto Parts. Despite his poor intellect and less than ideal social skills, he knew how to sell, or let's put it this way, he learned how to sell, and Callahan Auto Parts was saved at the very end. Tommy became the unlikely hero for Callahan Auto Parts, and he was revered and, and, and celebrated by all those who knew him. 
The story I mentioned to you is very much like the story of Ehud, of an unlikely hero bringing deliverance and salvation to the people of God. These are stories and humorous stories based on the theory of incongruity, and they are intended to make us laugh. This is what God does, and this is how God brings us salvation. If you don't know how the rest of the story of scripture goes, let me briefly explain this to you in a simple way, that God will save his people through the most unlikely character. And the character, of course, that I'm referring to is Jesus himself, who hailed from an unexpected place, Nazareth, and died a death on a very unexpected object, the cross. To the world, this is all foolish. We are saved by a God who went to the cross, who endured the shame? Are you kidding me? This is our salvation? But the apostle Paul agrees with this, saying the word of the cross is a joke to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, God will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning he will thwart for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, God brings us salvation in unexpected ways through unexpected people with unexpected objects. It's incongruent with what we expect, isn't it? You know, he still brings salvation in incongruent ways in ways that make us laugh. I've told stories of a uncle, swearing uncle, who, who, who comes to his, his nephew in the midst of his grief and high from the drugs and how the uncle cursed him into the church and he became a Christian in that. That's hilarious. There's stories of, of moms in here who, who, who stayed at home and thought, you know, my life, it's, it's just like, what am I doing with my life? That's the thought that's going through your mind, not realizing that the very work that you're doing is bringing salvation to your children. Unexpected. The stories are endless. He uses unexpected people in unexpected ways to bring people to himself. He still does it. So church, you can laugh at the unexpected ways that our Lord brings salvation. It can seem like a joke, But man, is it great. It is far greater to laugh than to cry, isn't it? That's joke number one. I got a second joke, and it's perhaps even worse. Joke number two. What's fat, fluffy, and no longer lives? Go with me on this one. Ready? What's fat, fluffy, and no longer lives? Eglon. Get it? Fat, fluffy, fluffy, eggs, no longer lives. It's so lame. I know that. Let's talk about Eglon, okay? (laughs) I told you it's bad. (laughs) I told you it's bad. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) At dinner this week, my children asked me to tell a Bible story um, at the dinner table. They do this from time to time, and it's fitting since I was studying this and reading this. I was like, yeah, sure, I'll tell you this story. They're going to love it. To begin with, though, I wanted the the kids to grasp the tension that the story really gives to us, which is the difficulty of being enslaved for 18 years. So I I, I tried to describe to them in ways what it would be like to be enslaved for 18 years. And and we don't necessarily know what it would be like, but we know that Ehud was was the head of a tribute. So they're bringing something to Eglon, and presumably this is something like gold, silver, wheat, just something to do it. And so we know that there was a loss of goods and there was a loss of resources. And I tried to help the kids understand 
How would it be for you to mow the lawn and I say, I'm gonna pay you $5 to mow the lawn, but when you're done, I take four of those dollars? How would you feel? And Benjamin, my oldest, goes, I'd be angry. This is exactly what the Israelites were feeling with Eglon. So I set that up. So once they grasped how hard it would have been on Israel and how they cried out to them, I moved to the part where Ehud becomes the point person for this convoy. And he comes to this man, the king of Moab, this evil and wicked people who, who sacrifice children as a part of their worship of their god, Molech. And I said, the first thing we see with this king of Moab, this wicked king of Moab, is we see this very interesting description. The Bible says he is fat. But, but not just fat, he is very fat. And what I said to them was he's Jabba the Hutt fat. We had just watched Star Wars the last few weeks of summer. They, who, they knew who Jabba the Hutt was. This is who Eglon is. He's a fat man. And I think it's quite ironic that the very man who's standing before Eglon, this tribute, bringing all these goods from Israel, is standing before this king who's fat. It's likely that he's fat because he's eaten not only his portion of food, but who else's food? Israel's. It's quite ironic. He gets fat and happy on someone else's goods, that which is not his own. He's a glutton. And so Ehud brings this tribute, and there's this, this kind of like weird thing that takes place. It says that Ehud dismisses people. It's likely that Ehud leaves the presence of Eglon with, with the people that were carrying this tribute with him. And they, it says they get to the idols at Gilgal. They get to the idols at Gilgal. Now Gilgal's on the uh, western part of the Jordan River, which is on the other side of the river where Moab. So they had left Eglon. And it says that when, when Ehud had gotten to the idols of Gilgal, he turns around. And he heads back to Eglon. Now, what does he say, Ehud say to Eglon when he gets in, in, into the presence of the king again? He says, I have a message from God. Now, I, 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 I hate to say I, I take issue with this translation. It's very well meaning that he could mean God. But the, the Hebrew word here is Elohim. And that can mean a plural gods. And so with him having walked to the idols of Gilgal, which Eglon would have much likely have been very curious about, and he knew that he came back, and he sat, and, and, and Ehud comes to him and says, I have a message from the gods, it's likely that Eglon would have definitely want to listen to what he has to say. He had just gone to the idols, maybe he received a message. And so he felt very comfortable, Eglon did, with Ehud in his presence, because he likely had a, a deformed right hand, and now he has something for him. And what does Eglon foolishly do? You can go. Guards, get out of here. And it says that Ehud and Eglon end up in the chamber. And what does God, what does the Bible say? Gets done. Ehud does indeed have a message from God. And the message is one of judgment. And he in a unique way, takes out his sword from his right thigh and then he shoves it into Eglon's belly and it says the fat rolls over the whole sword. Now at this, my kid's eyes, they're this big. They're like, oh man, that's fat. But then I said this and I said, do you know what came out? Do you know what came out once that sword went in? Now my oldest, who's smart, he's a fat man, he goes, fat. I said, no, that's not that's not what came out. And my five-year-old, if you know William, you know he's a firecracker. I could see his eyes. 
and they light up. And he knows. And he yells, poop! I nod my head in agreement, and the laughter starts rolling. They cannot stand it. And so William starts laughing, and then Benjamin starts laughing, and then Benjamin starts laughing, Madeline starts laughing, and then once they're laughing, Kimberly and I are laughing. And in that moment, I had a picture of what it would have been like to be a Jew. Here's a man who's oppressed us, an evil man who sacrifices children to appease his God, a man who's enslaved Israel for 18 years, and his fat, which was likely due to the tribute that we've been giving, ends up being the very thing that brings him to his demise. And our life has been one big sewer, and the man who's made our life one big sewer ends up in a sewer himself. And laughter would have rolled from everyone. It was a beautiful picture to see that story. A beautiful picture that demonstrates the theory of superiority. You see, Israel needed to see that indeed the things and the promises that God has made, that you are my people, I love you. Not because of anything you've done, I love you because I love you. They, they needed to see that, that that is indeed true. And God used the most unlikely person to bring the most unlikely death to a mighty king of Moab. It should cause us to laugh. You know, God continues to use this theory of superiority to cause us to laugh. When Jesus hung on a cross, he endured the shame of the Jews and the Romans. If you recall, above his head was the plaque, King of the Jews. It was meant to make fun of him in front of all the Jews. Oh, the King of the Jews. Oh, yeah, look at him. He's on a cross. How was the king on the cross? It was supposed to make fun of him. The Roman soldiers who were sitting at his feet you know, they're casting lots to see who gets his clothes. Like, yeah, who's gonna fill this on eBay? And, oh, yeah, this is gonna be great. I mean, they're making a mockery of him. And Satan likely sitting there and going, got him. Boom, it's done. It's done. And indeed, it feels like it's done because darkness comes over the whole land. The light of the world is being taken out and it's dark but we know that three days later, all of that gets turned on its head. See, when Jesus raised from the dead, it puts the cross in a completely different perspective, doesn't it? If Jesus doesn't raise from the dead, he's just another criminal who lays on the cross, and indeed, it is foolish, but Jesus is resurrected from the grave, and it turns the cross into quite a comedy show. And the comedy is not for us, it's for Satan and his enemies. If you will go with me, it is one cosmic wedgie for Satan of which we can laugh. Paul said it more lightly, politely. He said, God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. We don't typically laugh at that, but apocryphal indeed. It's a story that I've heard. I don't know the validity of it, but I'm a, it's an apocryphal story. It might have happened. I don't know. But it's of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was the great reformer in the 1500s who helped us get back to the scriptures. And there's this story of him studying in his study, and he's, and he's um, 
writing or reading, praying or whatever. And in the midst of his study comes Satan. And he looks up from his study as he's, as he's communing with the Lord and he looks at Satan and he says these words. Oh, it's just you. It's just you. And Satan immediately leaves. You see, Martin Luther understood the very thing that took place on the cross. It gave Satan a cosmic wedgie and he felt more superior than Satan in that moment. Church, it's hard for, for, for us to believe this, but do you know that as the children of God, that as the children of laughter, we have more power than Satan? That, that the powers and the principalities of this world that, that can do some serious harm are nothing to our God and are nothing to the God who calls us his own. When we laugh, we just do exactly what Luther did. <laughs> it's just you. What do you got for me, buddy? See, the story of Judges should cause us to laugh that even the most powerful kings are nothing before our God and God will use the most unlikely sources, the foolish of this world, to shame the strong. So church, never forget this. We are children of laughter and it's high time we get to laughing. But when we laugh, we honor our God and the great salvation that he has brought for us in Jesus. Let me pray. Almighty and gracious God, we give thanks for the joy of our salvation that we can even laugh, laugh in the midst of darkness, laugh in the face of the evil one. As we sung earlier today, we can dance in the darkness. Your hand, your mighty right hand is a hand that can procure and has procured salvation for us. And so we worship you and praise you Help us, O oh Lord, to live in light of this reality. Help us to laugh. Yeah, we take things seriously, but in the midst of our seriousness, let us laugh. Grant to us the joy of our salvation. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.